Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Stuart, Sean, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Happy Canada Day. Yeah, same. Great to connect, guys. Welcome to the news apocalypse. Topic number one has to be the continuing fallout around Bill C-18, the uh, legislation passed by the government just before it rose for the summer, asking, requiring uh, major platforms, Google and Meta, to subsidize news production in Canada. This comes on the heels of uh, significant thousand-plus person layoffs at Bell, um, a possible merger in the offing. I guess the Competition Bureau will have to weigh in between Post Media and the Toronto Star. Stuart, uh, you're our resident journalist at the Hub. What are you thinking about all this? And what's the buzz amongst your colleagues? I mean, it seems in a space of a few short weeks, you know, we've gone from a a lot of uncertainty about the future of media in Canada, uh, concern to something that's starting to look like the beginnings of a not insignificant crisis. Yeah, it is. It's a funny situation because I got into the business in 2010. I got a job at the Edmonton Journal in 2011. And then in 2012, they laid off basically the entire night desk. So everybody around me was gone. Um, so in my brain, this apocalypse has been happening since I basically started in the business. And in that time too, we were looking at these cratering balance sheets and people saying newspapers aren't gonna last past 2020. And they had just, they've been a little more resilient than we expected. Um, but I think now we're in that moment that I've been kind of expecting for a dozen years. Um, the, the the situation with post media has kind of dragged on because there's you know people who own their debt who are happy to get any amount of revenue from them that they can. Um, four stars just battled on, um, but through this every year there's layoffs. So what readers are seeing is just every year fewer things get covered. Things get covered a little worse than they were the previous year just because there's not enough people to go around. Um, and I think when you look at the government that looks based on everything we've seen this year with C-18, they look like they're scrambling. They look like they don't really have it together on this. They don't really know what to do. It's because they are, I think, undergoing something of a freakout that they could be the ones overseeing every local newspaper in Canada going down. If Post Media mm -hmm. goes down, every major city in Canada almost loses their newspaper. Um, so, so Sean, you know, what is, I think, particularly uh yeah, maybe it's the waterfall moment in some ways is the reaction, not just of Meta, but of Google uh, to this proposed legislation late this week saying, in effect, they will now take steps, I guess, barring some last minute capitulation on the part of the government to remove news links and that 
News search tab. I mean, before coming on today's show, I used Google News and the News search tab to find out what the heck the latest on C18 was. I mean, this is a regular part of my news routine. The loss of Meta might be one thing, but Sean, surely the loss of Google as a news aggregator and distributor, that is apocalyptic. Yeah, what, is it a, isn't it a Hemingway quote um, that you go bankrupt slowly and then suddenly? And what Stuart was talking about was the slow process of market pressure on these companies as they sought to kind of reconceptualize themselves for a, a new landscape. Um, what C18 has done has uh, essentially supercharged um, uh, those dynamics by... Uh, in in theory and, and seemingly in practice to remove both a, a key means by which the newspapers and media organizations were reaching their audiences. And I should say, in the name of full transparency, this <laughs> this relates to the hub. Um, but interestingly, guys, also removing a source of funding. You know, it's worth stepping back for a second. What C18 sought to do, for better or for worse, and in our view, worse, was to essentially universalize agreements that Meta and Facebook had signed on a voluntary basis with dozens of publishers across the country. I've seen reports, uh, I'm sure you have as well, that they numbered um, as many as 150. <laughs> and um, um, the government's provocation, as set out in C18, and the response of these two companies to withdraw from the news business in Canada means not just that we won't be able to access, we won't be able to um disseminate our our content um through their platforms um but the globe and mail post media and others are waking up this morning with a big hole in their balance sheets um and so you know the government is kind of going to face criticism from small upstarts like us um because c18 has removed this important channel and now from the companies that sought it in the first place um because uh, the the withdrawal of funding from google and and meta may precipitate in the coming days some of the precise challenges um that they were looking to uh to 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 manage it's just a a striking um own goal um that we've seen play out in in public policy in the past uh the past several weeks. Yeah, I mean, the thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is not just the loss of the Google News tab, but arguably some people saying, you know, for Google to be compliant with the act, they will need to scrub news um, organizations, possibly the hub too, because we appear right now under the Google News tab as indexed links that can be discovered through search. So if you stick C18 in your browser in this new reality, you're not going to find any news story on C18, which historically, at least for the last period of time, has been really beneficial to us at the Hub because their algorithms had preferenced news sources. So they would often appear at the top of the search. Not only were they indexed, they were indexed and then given, in a sense, privilege versus other search results. Now, you'll probably get Michael Geist's blog, which will be great for Michael Geist, the uh, Ottawa professor who's been you know, excellent on everything, you know, telecommunications and media. So blogs probably are going to be exempted, Substack. I don't know. You're still going to be able to get stuff, Stuart, but I guess I, I'm just struggling here to understand 
how people are going to find news in a digital society. I mean, are, are news organizations going to rely on people to remember their browser URLs and to punch these into their laptops and phones to go and find what the news is? Like, I don't know. I'm, I I want your reaction to this, Stuart, but I, I'm sympathetic to the government's um, taking a hard line here with Google in particular. I mean, if you want to sell billions of dollars of ads in this country, and you want to, uh, as just a, a dominant digital player, and then you want to go and say, well, you know, yeah, maybe they don't like Bill C-18. Maybe Bill C-18 wasn't the right solution. Maybe some form of direct platform tax was the right solution. That's another conversation for another day. But the place we find ourselves in now is we have a duopoly and oligopoly of global digital providers who dominate the information space. And if government, you know, capitulates or doesn't act, well, then effectively we have corporatized you know, uh, zeros and ones. And in our society, the distribution of zeros and ones when it comes to local news, uh, national news, how our institutions function, how we as citizens become informed about basic facts and debates, this is kind of important to us. This is kind of a must-have. It's not optional in an open, pluralistic, democratic society to not have the easy, ready availability of information that each of us requires to be agents of our own future, to act on information that will impact us. So Stuart, I just, this thing with Google, uh, I understand Facebook, it was a very small portion of their traffic, but this thing with Google to me is pretty existential. And it's bigger than just the news industry. It goes to the heart of how the heck are you and I or anybody going to really be informed about much of anything? Yeah. Yeah. There's two sides of it, right? Because the hub we rely on, of course, this last couple of weeks, we've just been getting amazing referrals from Google news, which is just Murphy's law. Um, but it helps us a lot, but you're right. It's the readers that are really going to be hurt by this. And I was just belatedly realized I have a Google pixel phone is an Android device that defaults to Google news as my news provider in the little widget on the side and I use that almost unconsciously. I just look at it as I'm scrolling my phone. And I, I bet a lot of casual news readers use that that way too. And that's how they stay informed, more so than reading your Facebook feed. Um, so I, I'm not totally um, sold that this isn't a little bit of brinkmanship, brinksmanship by Google and the government as, you know, we have an end of July deadline. There's a lot of back and forth. I wonder if maybe this will get solved because you know, as much as I said, the government doesn't want to oversee newspapers failing. You can't oversee the situation you described where Canadians are basically cut off from major news sources. Yeah, and I, I would react to what's been said in a couple of ways. Um, you, you know, first of all, um, you know, I think it, I think it's important to, to, to make the point um, that we've that what Google and Facebook have done is to essentially bring efficiency to the old way we used to go about consuming information and news. And that's why they've become so dominant, right? I remember, guys, I read this book 
years ago by Michel Grattan, who was a press secretary to uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. He used to say that the Prime Minister sat around and read five newspapers every morning, cover to cover, to make sure he was on top of what was going going on in the country. I just think, holy smokes, you know, a, a teenager today can kind of more efficiently consume news through his uh, through Google or through his Twitter feed than the Prime Minister of Canada could, you know, 30 years ago or 35 years ago. Um, and so, you know, in a way, what this means is not necessarily that we won't still be able to consume news and information. It's just it's regressive in the sense that it is anti-progress. We're going to be going back to the way that Brian Mulroney used to consume news as opposed to the way that the, the teenager currently currently does. Um, the, the second point I, I would just I would just put on the table is uh, you, you talked a bit, uh, Stuart, about what are the potential consequences and fallout and reactions? My biggest fear is that um, this pushes the government further into the um, direct both designation of and subsidy to news media. Um, you know, uh, I think one of the reasons that, uh, for better or for worse, they tried to do C18 was there was this sort of conceptual sense that somehow if we forced big tech to subsidize them as opposed to us, that that changed the dynamic in some way, that it was um, that there was fewer problems if it was uh, corporations as opposed to governments, you know, in terms of the media's independence and and objectivity and, and all the rest. And I, you've already seen Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez say in the event that uh, Facebook and Google leave the market and and take these agreements with them. Um, that we don't know precisely the value, but there's reason to believe that they total in the millions that the government will backstop um, those decisions with further public subsidies. And so, you know, we're going to have, I don't know, guys, the government subsidizing as much as 50% of newsroom costs in the country. That just strikes me as a completely unsustainable model, not just from a business point of view, but increasingly from the ability of journalists to do journalism. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. And, you know, heck, there's another battery plant supposedly in the offing that's going to get a cool $5 billion from this government. So what's a couple billion dollars amongst friends? I, mean, I could I could see actually a more cynical advisor of the government saying, hey, this is a great opportunity. Let's effectively nationalize the press, right? I mean, what's a few billion? Honestly, I think we're up to maybe 25 billion. The latest count on battery subsidies. That's just batteries. We're going to talk something about it. That's actually a bit more essential to our society. Talk news and information, but I guess Stuart, maybe the last word of this, I just come back to this, that the problem now is not just the funding thing, which I agree with Sean, 100%, you know, how, how are people in an age of misinformation and disinformation going to see the media as an objective source of information when, it's effectively subsidized by government. But the problem here is the dominance of Google in terms of the gateway through which people discover and aggregate the information that they run their lives on. And if Google walks away and gets rid of the news tab and stops indexing news sites so news results don't show up in your search, this to me is a way bigger problem than any funding problem. This is a this is an example of a you know a monopolistic corporate power that would then 
through that monopoly and their control of it would exercise huge damage on Canadian society and democracy and the whole notion at the core of our civic compact that people need to be informed about the things that matter to make better choices about the things that matter. So I just, that's the part to me that's new this week. And I just, I just think here, you know, guys, this is like a, you know, this is like a, the standoff in the okay corral. And it is really important that governments don't blink here because if the government blinks and it capitulates and it says to Google, Oh, well, you know, the act was a big mistake. Sorry, sorry. You're going to ban all, you know, news discovery in Canada. You get to go do your asymmetrical deals. And let's face it. They're asymmetrical deals. Google's the gatekeeper. It's a multi-trillion dollar company. It's one of the most powerful corporations in the history of the world. And what we at the hub are supposed to negotiate with them on equal terms to reflect our interests and priorities and whatever agreement we reach. No, guys, this is a moment where, you know, again, I think C18 was wrong. I think that I would have, and actually I heard from some of the people at one of the platforms that they would have actually preferred a direct tax, that they could have understood the financial implications of it. They could have modeled it into their budgets. You know, this could have been a direct levy. Again, to me, intellectually, that gets a bit problematic because why would you just be, what, you're using that levy for the media? I mean, maybe it should just be a levy to general revenues of government. You know, it's an operational tax. Uh, all kinds of other businesses pay taxes to operate in Canada. And, you know, why we could go that route. Maybe we will. But at the end of the day, Stuart, this is something, this is something big here. This is a moment, and I'm sure the world is watching. I'm sure a lot of other countries and jurisdictions are watching. And maybe that's why Google's doing what it's doing, because they're concerned about the precedent. Yeah, and I would just emphasize that at every point in this process, the small outlets like us get screwed just a little bit more than everybody else. Because, for example, everybody knows the globeandmail.com. Everyone knows nationalpost.com. The way we've grown the hub is by getting it into people's faces and showing them how good our stuff is. We use social media for that. We use Google for that. We use all these different methods. Um, but we have to grow by you know using these platforms. I think if you're the National Post, when I used to work there, I looked at the web desk. We had all the different ways people got to our website. Um, the homepage was a big one. People are already used to going to these newspapers and outlets. So um, I, I think, you know, one thing I have sympathy for is that Google tried to get away from the government's process of denoting who is a news organization and who isn't uh, and maybe setting some lower boundaries on that. I think that that is what we need to do is sort of open this up a little bit more um, stop assuming the legacy outlets are going to be there forever and allow some innovation. And that's the thing I think the government's really struggled with on this. Yeah, I just ask a question, guys, before we wrap up. Like, you guys follow this stuff more closely than me. Um, we've been talking about this a lot in the past few weeks, but maybe just share your perspective with readers. Like, are, Is the potential of a, a bankruptcy imminent? Like, how, how urgent, guys, should people understand um, the crisis facing some of these large media players in Canada. Well, I mean, two thoughts. I think the 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 Google decision this week would really put a kibosh on any viability of the post uh, media Toronto Star merger. I mean, if this goes ahead, 
the collapse in traffic on news sites across Canada would be catastrophic. And there's no way that that merger, which already looks pretty tenable, would have possibly difficulties with the competition board. I don't think there's any economic model for for them to pursue it. So yeah, I I think that that is that this Google decision now is the the crux of everything. And maybe that's my final point for this segment. That's the one thing that listeners need to focus on this week and keep an eye on. Where does what does Google decide? What countermeasures does the government take? How or not can Google, which again, one of the most powerful companies in the history of the world, be brought to heel? I'm not so confident about it. I think they see this as a Trojan horse in Canada. Once wheeled in, other countries, California is already looking at it, Brazil, Europe. Suddenly, you know, uh, Google is deep in the new subsidy business across all the major advanced economies. So I'm not, you know, I'm worried, guys. I'm not hugely optimistic here that there's going to be some quick resolution of this because there are bigger issues at stake. And wow, I just can't imagine. Like what? We're gonna to have to remember URLs. <laughs> it's like phone numbers. It's bizarre. It's like we're going back to the '90s, you know, Netscape or something. But I mean, come on. My my very quick take on that merger is, you get almost every local newspaper in Canada in one entity. It allows you to go to the government and say, "Hey, it would be a real shame if every single local newspaper in Canada fell under your watch." Um, yeah, I- it's these are good hostages. Yesterday, I called it uh, on our episode with Amanda Lang, the journalistic equivalent of a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, And, you know, maybe that was precisely the intent. Too big to fail. Kind of work for the banks. Maybe it'll work for Post Media Toronto Star. Uh, We'll have to see what the Competition Bureau has to say. Okay, quick break. And then back on the other side, Canada Day this weekend. We're going to talk to the team about the state of the nation. Where do we find ourselves July 1st? 2023 we'll get that conversation for you right after this break hi hub podcast listeners rudyard griffiths here the executive director of the hub wanted to ask for your support today no i'm not asking for money i'm asking for your attention if you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping six episodes in partnership with a group called pathways alliance This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the Hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts so if you're enjoying them please listen to these episodes with pathways give us your feedback we'd love your input but also share them with friends and family that would be greatly appreciated well with that advertisement over let's go back to our regular programming 
Welcome back to the Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Sean, let me come to you first. Uh, July 1st is upon us. Um, I, a, a, I don't know, just a feeling to run by you that uh, the country is in, uh, I don't know, a moment of kind of turmoil and flux that I've not felt really in in years from kind of wildfires to collapse of the media which we we're just talking about in the previous break to the war in Ukraine um, AI it goes on and on and on I don't know I I'm looking for something here to kind of <laughs> chill out and relax this Canada day long weekend but I find just a persistent sense of an acceleration of issues and challenges facing the country and a, a sense of a gap possibly in our capacity, our ability to address this maelstrom of, you know, competing and not unserious crises that, you know, confront us as this, um, you know, this loose federation spanning all these great territories, jurisdictions, regions, languages, and cultures, um, I want to be optimistic. Help me. <laughs> um, well, let me, I'll, I'll put one optimistic idea on the table and maybe one uh, pessimistic uh, one. Uh, yesterday, the popular economics blog, American economics blogger, uh, Noah Smith, um, published an, an essay, which is traveling far and wide in Canadian public policy and political circles called Maximum Canada, where he lauds um Canadian immigration policy, the fact that we added a million people in 2022, the, the biggest increase in more than half a century. Um, and he argues that this is Canada's identity in a way that um, that we've managed to uh, build this political or public consensus around uh, immigration. And that's the thing that we ought to uh, define ourselves by and, and feel good about um, uh, this Canada Day. The problem is, as is often the case when uh, foreign observers um, evaluate Canada and Canadian policy and politics, is that they their distance on one hand gives them a kind of useful perspective. On the other hand, it can cause them to miss some pretty big things. Uh, Smith writes, Canada knows who they are and good for them. And it seems to me uh, that's Precise, precisely the opposite. That some one of the the reasons, Rudyard, that things feel a bit tumultuous is because we don't know who we are, uh, and and as we face this myriad of challenges um, that you that you talked about, you know, political leadership, politics aren't isn't providing um, that common sense of of purpose. Uh, in fact. A lot of our politics, driven in large part, frankly, by um, by the, the algorithms that we were talking about in the last segment, are pushing the country further apart. Uh, and that's making it harder and harder, not just to uh, have a kind of sense of shared identity as we celebrate Canada today, but I think more worryingly, in a, in a way, less capable of addressing some of those big challenges facing the country. And, and that's those are reasons, I think, to... Uh, uh, be a bit pessimistic uh, as we turn to Canada Day this weekend. So, Stuart, I know you are a Canada Day fan. Um, 
And look, in a previous life, I, I ran a charity that used to every July 1st torture the country with surveys about how little we knew about our past. So I'm kind of like a professional Grinch when it comes to July 1st, and I need to acknowledge that. So give me your dose of kind of optimism about why we can and should be flag waving on July 1. Yeah, that's funny. I came to Canada in 1988. So I'm a Canada Day guy and all of our contributors are Dominion Day people. So it's like, even that I'm a little bit offside. I, I think probably the the best thing to do for me is that, you know, we have a little group of friends, all my friends from Halifax came to Ottawa. We all get together every year on Canada Day. We only do that for, we have two locked in events. One is Canada Day and the other is the East Coast Telethon every Christmas called Christmas Daddies, which goes back to like the 50s. Um, and we make sure we do it. And that it's a personal thing. It's all of my best friends. We all get together. And I think that is the key because Roderick, when you talk about Canada and history and how we have no shared identity, I basically agree with you. Like it, it all, I think it's inarguable almost that, you know, we're kind of a fractured country and we are ever more fractured with every year that I've been alive. Um, but there's just something about the human brain that it looks at the immediate uh, area around us and thinks it's pretty good and then looks at the broader picture and says, ah, we're in decline. Um, so there is sort of a cognitive quirk there. And I try to fight that by having these little, you know, personal community gatherings. Well, our, new house that, our new house that we bought last year, we are a straight shot to the Canada fireworks. So we can sit in our lawn and watch the fireworks. So uh, I'm going to have a really corny Canada Day like I do every year. <laughs> nice. Well, look, that, I think that's a great attitude and perspective, you know. Go local. Small things are beautiful. I've often felt that way about life. Um, but <laughs> I mean, big picture, you know, we've just spent the last year as we did the year before, you know, not only my time at the Dominion Institute, this charity I ran kind of forgetting our past, but Sean actively actively disassembling it and just disassembling it in ways that make it somehow uh, stigmatized. And look, there are many sins of omission and commission in Canadian history, like every other country in the world. That's not to deny um, the reality of Canadian history. But what I particularly find offensive is this blanket expunging of Canada's colonial history. So the period, however you wanted to define that before World War One, or if you want to go back to Confederation, the period before that, because this really is the age within which many of the traditions that we so value today are pluralism, our ability to reconcile, you know, differences that this is when all that stuff gelled, the origins of, of, the country are not didn't appear sine qua non out of the head of Lester B. Pearson at at Expo <laughs> sixty seven, um, and I don't know, Sean. I just this combination of you know mass immigration, um, which again uh, Canadians do support and should support, but now at levels that are two to three to four times you know the historic. Uh, kind of allotment of you know 
immigration as a percentage of population. I mean, we have really maxed this out at a moment where the country is very uncertain about it. Not even, I would say uncertain, very negative about its own identity, its own history, all those touchstones that you would naturally, any culture would look to, to create commonality. And, and I guess the final thought to have you riff off, Sean, is like, do we care about commonality anymore? I just wonder if this whole post-national vibe or meme that has you know, been a consistent motif of the liberal government for the last seven years hasn't won the day and isn't really in the ascendancy. Well, we I'm don't gonna... we don't really want to belong to anything anymore. Uh, we see, you know, loose, airy fairy kind of ideas, <laughs> but deeply, do we really want to share anything with each other? I'm me... I'm suspicious. Let me let me reply with a bit of a lazy response by putting a question in the group, and I, I'd be interested not just a, a, a your reaction, Stuart Redyard, but maybe we should bring in Amal Atar Guzman, our producer, who is increasingly experienced, is the quintessential Canadian experience, second-generation immigrant, uh, mixed ethnic household, um, mixed religious household. I mean, uh, lives in a Toronto suburb. She is the kind of face of modern Canada. And and the question I would put to you is the scenario you described, Rudyard, which I, I agree looms over the country. Is that an elite project? Is Or is that a project that um, is shared by ordinary Canadians? You know, I'm 41. When I was a young person, there was a popular book series I used to read as a kid called Choose Your Own Adventure. I don't know if you guys remember those books. And what you do is you would, you would read to a certain point and then it would it would the the book would require you to, to choose a, a page and depending on the page you chose that the plot went in one direction or the other and of course the thing you would always do is when you were finished you would go back and read the other plot line to see what you what you had missed and sometimes i wish we had the ability to do choose your own adventure in the way we carry out politics because politics is headed in the direction that you've described, Rudyard. But I have this sense, maybe naivety, maybe idealistic, that an alternative path, one that was, you know, that reckoned with the past, but was fundamentally patriotic, um, uh, would find resonance, not just uh, amongst, you know, <laughs> this, uh, for the lack of a better term, old stock Canadians, <laughs> um, but also people like a mall and that there is a kind of yearning for that in the Canadian public. And before I turn it over, let me just say my one proof point of this is I've always had this hypothesis. It's kind of unprovable that one of the reasons the Harper government was reelected with a majority in 2011 was because the good feeling in the country, the popular sentiment, um, stemming from the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver, which was this kind of expression of, for lack of a better term, nationalism. And so that's the one proof point that I take with me to think this elite project of denigrating the past, of self-consciousness about nationalism, about the preference for post-national state is not actually representative or responsive to um, how and Canadians feel about their own country. What's, what's your sense of all? When I always remember this watching the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, um, when the torch came to City Hall, my mom immediately put me in a jacket, says, We're going, we got to go. This is a historic moment. This is a big moment for Canada. We're going. So I suffer through the cold, 
my feet were freezing because I didn't put double socks, but I still saw that torch like being run in and everyone was just so excited to see that torch. I think that was just such a moment of great patriotic pride. And I'll never forget watching Alex Bilodeau in the Moguls winning the first Canadian gold on Canadian soil. The first Olympic gold on Canadian soil. That has never happened in Montreal. That has never happened before. And I just remember that pride. And then when Sidney Crosby went with that final goal in the Vancouver Olympics against the United States of America, oh yeah, nothing made us so, felt so proud to be Canadian. Like me, like my entire household was in uproar because we've been watching hockey for all these years. So seeing that, that was such a quintessential moment. But I guess with my feelings of Canada Day, like I will be honest, over the few years, I haven't been really celebrating it. I haven't been celebrating it because one, the pandemic hit us. Two, there was the racial injustice all over the United States and also what's go- and also bleeding into the Canadian consciousness. And then the year afterwards, with unmarked graves of residential school children, I just felt it totally inappropriate and just plain cruel. And I've been kind of rectally with my feeling of Canada, but like, why should I celebrate something when there's so many like bad things that have been going on in the past, but also what's going on in the present, economic instability. Now we're seeing all these wildfires going around. So I've been kind of grappling with this, like, why should I celebrate? It was until I visited a friend of mine, a graduate friend of mine. We've been friends for many years. He finally became a Canadian citizen after years of going through the process, studying and going through this entire like bureaucracy of the system he finally did he finally took the oath and when I visited his apartment his and his partner's apartment I still saw the string of Canadian flags and they were just so excited that he finally achieved this and like he and it just seemed like he wanted to be a part of something he's like finally I'm Canadian finally I'm here finally like I'm with you guys like with our, in our friend group we're all Canadian here and I think that's just gave me a reminder just gave me a reminder of like no people they want they come to Canada for many for many reasons and for him it was an opportunity and hope and for him to actually realize his life the way he wanted to be realized because Canada does give up us the freedom and the opportunity to do so and when I come home when I came home afterwards I talked to my parents I asked them well what was your feeling when you guys became Canadian citizens the light in their eyes still show when they talk about their experience once they finally took the oath like to this day, even it's been like decades, like years and years since they became Canadians, they still have that hope. They still have that feeling of we are in a place that we get to choose our lives to be basically agents of our own lives. That no one's going to like, that no government or anyone comes and intrude on us, that we get to choose our own destinies. And I think this Canada, I will be celebrating. And this is not in spite of, and this is not to dismiss the historical ills, but as recently, I was also watching The Crown. I re- Princess Margaret, she said something to Margaret Thatcher, very interesting. She's like, countries will always have crises. They always do. Like, as we see now, they always have crises. But every once in a while, sometimes you just got to take a break. And sometimes maybe that taking that break, a little inspiration may come through. Mm-hmm. Great insights, Samal. And, uh, you know, I think that's a super positive note to, to end this segment on. We'll say that, over a decade ago, the f- first and only book I ever wrote about, um, I ever wrote was on, you know, c- kind of Canada. <laughs> it's almost seems quixotic to write these types of books now, but the thesis I came up with, which is, you know, how do you respond to the post national ennui 
that I think does, in fact, maybe, as you say, much more our elites than society itself is, is citizenship. And I think at the end of the day, citizenship is something that we all share, whether we're born in this country or whether we become an immigrant, it is, uh, and it's not just set, a set of rights. Let, let's hope for people that can also reflect on the responsibilities. Uh, it's one thing that I think does with sport being the other that really does bind us together, you know, in a diverse, fast changing world. And I just love to see us all spend a little more time as you just did them all reflecting on just the inherent value of our citizenship, not just to us, but the collective projects um, that we all get to be part of. So on that optimistic note, let's uh, wrap up this version of the roundtable. Keep doing it throughout the summer. We are here for you. I expect the news flow is not going to slow down. So the roundtable is going to stay in high gear. Um, check out our Canada Day special uh, in the hub uh, coming to you by email and on our website, uh, what, Stuart, on Monday? Yeah, we've got a tie needle tomorrow on Canada Day, uh, which will be fun. And then we also have a Monday one, which will be sort of Canada Day adjacent. So um, there'll be a lot to read in the coming days. Awesome. Okay. Take a break, guys. Enjoy some good weather. And uh, we'll do this all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atter Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.